know, the world was portrayed as this dangerous place um, where people hated us and were out to get us. And it was really scary to come out into it um, in many ways. Hi, Cork Hackers. This is a podcast about cracking the Cork code. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in Corks. And I'm Celine's dad, Stephen, organisational psychologist, also very interested in high control groups and cults, um, and also a former member. So welcome to Cult Hackers. Uh, so, Celine, new name. Excited? Yes, we've done it. We've teased <laughs> about doing it. We maybe did it for a long time, and now we've done it. Yeah, we've agonised over this decision, haven't we, for a long time. It's it's the way Mainly I because roll. People, yeah, and people said they like it so much, and that's lovely. But we think yeah. it is the right decision, and I hope that you're all excited too. Absolutely, yeah. We've we've decided to go for it. We did have I did have some Twitter action um, with people asking me, "Are we going to still have the sheep noise?" Well, it was at the on beginning? our Patreon group as well. It was. It was on our Patreon group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a question. I don't know. Do we do we stick with the the sheep sound? I think we hide it somewhere. <laughs> It's got to be in there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah we'll put it so in somewhere. Just one way or another, you, the patrons. It'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need the the evil sheep sound. Um, okay, cool. So why cult hackers then? Why did we come up with this name? We picked this name because it represents everybody that we interview. Um, it represents you as someone that's left and it represents anyone that listens that's left a high control group. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be anybody really, kind of. A cult hacker is somebody who's trying to crack mm-hmm. that cult code, trying to understand yeah. it. Represents just anybody that's interested mm. and trying to understand. That's right. And ultimately, um, the only way that we're going to defeat harmful cults and, and groups is by people knowing about them, being forewarned and forearmed about them, um, so they can take action. So I think, you know, in a way, we can all mobilize uh, together and, and uh, work to uh, reduce the impact of these groups at, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, our listeners, our friends, the people that we interview. So we interview lots of different people and we will continue to do that on the show. So experts, academics, researchers, ex-members, authors, artists, you know, the list goes on really of really interesting people who are all in their own way cult hackers in our view. Mm-hmm. Hence the name. Hence the name. So that's the reason behind the name. And today for our very first episode as cult hackers, we've got a fantastic cult hacker. We've got Nicola Ranson. Mm-hmm. So who's Nicola Ranson, Celine? Well, she is... <laughs> Why are you laughing? He, he asked the question as if he didn't know. Yes. Um, Nicola is a very interesting guest. Um, she was a member of the Rajnish group and um, has, you know, subsequently left and is telling her story, um, does have a book um, that's mentioned and we talk about as well. But yeah, it's our interview talking with her about how she ended up in that group, um, what it was like in the group, how she left the group and all of that jazz. That's right. Yeah. So if you've ever seen the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country, which is a kind of six-parter, I think. Um, quite a popular one. Very interesting documentary. And uh, that's the group. That's the group that Nicola 
was involved in. So it's become quite high profile, really. And her book is called A Slice of Orange. It's not out till next year. So we will definitely keep you informed about that when you can do your pre-orders and stuff. But yeah, I I was very fortunate to get um, a look at a, an early draft. So we did talk about some of that book in detail. So if you want to kind of get a sneak preview of the book, then this is the best way, really, listen to Nicola talk about it. So she's lovely. She's a really interesting person. Um, yeah, so can't wait for you to to listen to to Nicola. Before we do that, um, we just want to say something about the podcast and uh, getting it to new ears. I, I had a look on on Google the other day, and according to Google, there's about two and a half million podcasts in the world. Can you believe that, Celine? Mm. Yes, because <laughs> there was a lot of jokes about everyone having a podcast for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's loads and loads of podcasts, and to try and get hours in front of people is really quite difficult so the only way that that happens is is through the algorithm the dreaded algorithm and so liking it ranking it or rating the podcast leaving a review if you're on apple Podcasts, um yeah just all that stuff is the only way that we know really to to grow the podcast so Mm -hmm. yeah um if you like cult hackers or if you like the idea then yeah, do those things. That that would be great. Yeah, that's all the housekeeping out of the way. Let's get on with the main meat of this and head over to her, Nicola. Great. Welcome, Nicola, to the podcast. Thank you very much, Stephen and Sunny. You know, I'm really excited. This is great. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, I'm so happy to speak to you. So you were very kind in that you sent me a uh, an early version of your book so that... Uh, we would sort of have more to talk about. And it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, People should um, definitely get their early orders in as soon as they can uh, because it's a really interesting book. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, Nicola, please. Um, And, yeah, I mean, you don't need to tell us your whole life story straight away. We're going to get there. Um, But, uh, yeah, how did you – who are you and how did you end up in this group? Well, I'm currently in San Diego, California, so it's really exciting to be talking to you in the UK because I'm originally (laughs) from the UK. Mm. I came from rugby and Ah. emigrated to Canada when I was 10 and ended up living in Canada and then back in England. And then I was in England after university that I got involved with Rajneesh and the organisation, which was then centred in India. So I went out to India in 1979 for a few months and then returned to actually Canada, trying to make money to get back to live there in India. uh, When Rajneesh moved the ashram from India uh, to eventually Oregon Mm -hmm. and it became known as Rajneesh Puram. And that's what the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country centers on. So I was there most of the time. And I was there through the bitter end and then have been in the process of trying to figure out what happened and extricating myself ever since, basically. And the, the book you mentioned um, is coming out next year from Touchpoint Press. So not available yet, but coming out. So if you want any more details, it's in there. <laughs> Great. Yes, absolutely. And uh, obviously, we'll keep our listeners up to date um, 
as that happens. I mean, it sounds such a long time away, but next year will come in a flash. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's going to be great to read that. Okay. If you get any, like, pre, um, you know, and you can pre-order books, if you have any links like that, always send them our way because we can put them in our show notes anytime as well. Oh, terrific. Thanks so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it's very interesting. Your, your story is... Um, well, for me, I mean, you're, you're the author, so you can tell me if I'm completely wrong. But I felt like your book was in two parts in some respects. The sort of before the group and then um, then once your life changes when you, you meet the group. And actually, you spend quite a lot of time talking about your life before uh, meeting this, this group and getting involved in it. Um, and it, you, you come across, I mean, first of all, you are a a world child you've sort of been to lots of different countries you've experienced lots of different cultures and um you have a love for india which comes across in your in your writing as well um how much do you think that that sort of personality that you had of you know really inquisitive um you seem to to come across as quite a spiritual person how do you think that affected your uh, getting involved in this group well definitely I was always sort of exploring and seeking and asking questions. Um, yeah. So that is a big part of you know, landing in a spiritual group um, and finding where I thought the answers for me next lay. Hmm. And I did, I wanted to do the before and after because I think we're so drawn to the cult experience. That's where all the drama is. That's yeah. where all the focus is. And it doesn't necessarily address the questions of, you know, where do these people come from and what happened to them afterwards? Yeah. And in fact, when Wild Wild Country came out, I was reading those sorts of questions in their um, whatever I saw online. Mm. And I thought, well, I, I can answer that. I'm in the middle of writing a book about it. Mm. Um, and I'm really trying to tell my story because I think it's so easy to get really analytical and dismissive of people who join cults and um, think of them as, as, as them and especially the more wacky the cult, you know, how stupid is that person? Mm -hmm. And I thought that by telling the story of a young girl sort of growing up and what happened to her and the various influences just helped a, a reader come into an understanding of, oh, well, if I were that person, I would have made those choices. Um, so it's, yeah, it's hard to say, you know, when people sort of say, you know, what early influences led you to join the cult? I think that there's also the danger of that can make it very othering too. Oh, yeah. she had all these traumas, uh, therefore she definitely was susceptible. Mm. Um, whereas it's very hard when it's your life to try and extricate well, what, well, what was good and what was bad? Because they're the experiences that made you you. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, and I think that's that gives uh, the book a richness, really, that that is really important. Um, I think you're right. Um, the, the the Netflix documentary. If you get a chance to watch it, um, uh, if our listeners uh, have not seen it yet, um, I mean, I find it incredibly interesting. What was your thoughts about it um nicola from somebody who'd actually been there how did you sort of respond to that documentary well first i thought it was a very well done documentary and in fact 
I went out and got Netflix specifically because I heard it was coming out. I didn't have Netflix. And I was gripped at six parts. And obviously I knew what the outcome was, but it's the first thing I've ever binge watched in my life because it was (laughs) exciting. And I thought what they did, it's made by uh, the Chapman brothers um, and, sorry, Chapman, the Way brothers, um, and who weren't even born when this was happening. So they were doing it through his documentary research, historical research. And the focus is on the legal battles going on in Oregon. Mm. And I always thought that that was so complicated. It's so hard to explain to anyone what all these lawsuits were, what was going on, why were the uh, so many government agencies involved and so on. It's very complex. So to actually have that as a foundational piece and make it interesting and exciting, I thought was an incredible accomplishment. Yeah. And there's been an awful lot of repercussions from that documentary from all kinds of perspectives. And I heard from a lot of people who were involved, we called ourselves sannyasins. A lot of the sannyasin and ex-sannyasin community were saying, um, well, they didn't talk about why we were there. They didn't talk about daily life. They didn't talk about uh, what it was all about. And and I sort of felt, well, make your own documentary. You know, I felt like that, that wasn't really, to me, the, the focus. Um, and then people came from looking at it um, and really got very excited about it. There's been a spin-off. There's a documentary, Netflix documentary, I think it is, on mm-hmm. Sheila since then. Sheila was oh, the main secretary. Um, there was a fashion trend in New York. There was a Saturday Night Live spoof, which means he really reached it. <laughs> um, it had a lot of repercussions, and both positive and negative, and other people horrified about the terrible cr- criminal activities that went on. And, and that amazed me to see how people could watch the same documentary and some of them were ready to sign up and join and others were really condemning it. And I'm thinking, mm. did we watch the same thing? No, did, did they miss the bit about all the criminal activities? <laughs> I, yeah. I thought it was really fascinating. That, that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I, I also really enjoyed it. And um, I have to say, um, and I find myself saying this more often than I would like, that I feel slightly ashamed that I hadn't um, really come across this group. Um, or I wasn't aware of the group, certainly not consciously, um, before watching that documentary. So it, it opened my eyes to it, um, even obviously though I'm interested in, in the area of cults and, and high control groups. Um, okay, let's um, let's just come back to your, your story then. So um, how old were you when you uh, started to have contact? I don't think you were like, orig- initially you weren't you know, massively attracted to the group. It took a little while, didn't it, to, to start becoming involved. How old were you and how did that happen? I was in my early 20s and I just finished university and was trying to get work going and uh, just kept seeing people dressed in orange everywhere. At at that time, the disciples always wore something in the spectrum of orange and red, but solid Mm -hmm. colors. So they really stood out with prayer beads around their necks. Mm -hmm. And I was really struck by um, the happiness. They seemed to be very radiant, happy, cheerful people. Um, And I think that's what initially attracted me. And then I started reading the books, The, the guru, 
uh, that we knew as Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh later uh, was renamed, or as I think of it, got rebranded as, as Osho, but it's the same person. And he was a philosophy professor and he talked copiously and he had an incredibly well-read, he had an incredible um, literacy, literal vocabulary of what was out there in spiritual and philosophical books. So he lectured a lot in both Hindi and in English and everything he said was transcribed. So he didn't, it's not like he sat down and wrote books, but the books of his lectures, I mean, there must be hundreds of books out there. And I started reading them and got really involved and then ended up um, being invited to a meditation center and um, finding a romance with someone and um, just felt really called. But it still felt to me like a very internal process that it was an attraction I felt like falling in love with somebody and attracting me spiritually, which I think sometimes gets left out of the story because we focus on all the drama, but it was initially that that's, that's what I was following. And I think also in my book, when I tried to get my mind about, well, what am I really writing about? I don't want to be writing about my entire life. Who's interested in that? (laughs) But the, the, cohesive theme is really it's a spiritual journey you know it's my spiritual journey yeah obviously at this point you're starting to be more involved you're falling in your like sort of metaphor you're falling for like in into into it like um into this notion the ideas and so on what core beliefs that you were kind of starting to take on well i think the context is it was 1970s sort of following the 1960s and I think um, one thing I've learned about cults is that they don't necessarily impose they don't take an extraneous belief and impose it on someone a cult uh, is something that resonates with stuff you already believe and or at least there's part of it that resonates with what you already believe and so it was very much the hippie era and a very um, sort of rebellious time. So my age group and the age group sort of ahead of me, like mostly people in their 30s, I say, were the predominant people involved, were people really anti-establishment and saying, you know, past generation messed everything up. Um, what can we do to make the world a better place? Peace and love and um, nonviolence and um, non-materialism were really the core values. Mm -hmm. And this question of how do you make the world a better place, I think was what a lot of people in my generation were grappling with, as every generation does. And part of what was coming out was, well, it's about your own personal growth, that it happens through how you change yourself and become more loving and more caring and open your heart. And that's the best way to change the world. So really um, Rajneesh was um, really embodying that as a real rebel himself. He just loved talking anti-establishment and would be cruelly, severely critical of religions and governments and authoritarian power structures. And so he attracted a group of people that were themselves rebellious or rebels. At least that's how we saw ourselves. 
So the whole thing is very ironic and I think very different to the group that you came from, Stephen, which sounded, you know, like for Jehovah's Witnesses, in my mind, are, you know, they've got a top-down authoritarian power structure. And I think when you get involved in a cult, that's what you end up with. But in my particular cult, we got caught in it thinking that we were actually about freedom and love and not trusting what we were told. It was very much, as far as spirituality, don't trust religions, don't trust what's dogma that's been handed down from other people. You can have your own experience of the divine and step into it and fully immerse yourself in that, and that's what you can trust. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Um, it, it's particularly interesting because, actually, you're, you're absolutely right, Nicola. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses are these days a very top-down centralized organization and we, we talked about this today in our, in our recording it's very much like a business it's run very much like a like a business organization however if you go back to the 1870s or whatever when Charles Taze Russell first started to create the Bible students as they were called it was very much about um, rejecting religion, about using the Bible um, and not listening to clergy to tell you how to study the Bible. It was really about the Bible. And um, in fact, they they had placards uh, march down um, the street shouting, religion is a snare and a racket, you know. So they didn't want to be called a religion. And it, it's almost like there's a kind of, uh, there's a an environment that is... A friendly environment, a environment that creates the conditions, and these groups bubble up from it that meets what people are looking for at the time. But then, if they stay around long enough, they, in a way, have to develop the bureaucracy and the organization and the leadership. And that's when you start to see a lot of these authoritarian um, tendencies, I guess. And and that. Um, seems to go through your book again you know it starts as one thing and and seems to finish as something completely different um, which again is is a really interesting observation I think. And I was only there at a specific period of time and this organization is still continuing and still big as far as I know at this time and has a lot of different branches very much involved in the therapy world for starters. And from my outside perspective, because I feel I have got absolutely no expertise, I can't tell you anything about what's going on now, but it sure looks from the outside as if there's an awful lot of business going on. Um, The the ashram in Pune is known as the resort. You know, it's not a cheap place to go to. Mm -hmm. Um, And these therapy programs that people get involved in, you know, cost a lot of money. So there is a, you know, huge business aspect. A lot of these groups often cost a lot of money, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Or or everything, in the case of some of us. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you have to give everything to it. Um, Yeah, so in in terms of the beliefs, um, it's interesting, again, in your book, you seem to suggest that it's quite vague, really, and and the the idea is that there's kind of enough of a, a vacuum there for you to fill it in with whatever you kind of want it to be and and that seems to be uh, on purpose you know so in the early days when you're trying to explain to people what it is you you struggle to to explain it and 
you know, is that fair? Is that is that kind of right? Yeah, I think I'm still struggling to explain it <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> and part of the vagueness is because it was anti-belief systems. Yes. So you can't really say, oh, we believe X, Y, Z, if you're joining a group that's saying, hey, belief systems are not where it's at. The belief systems is your mind that's been culturally programmed by society. If you want an experience of the, the divine, you need to transcend belief systems and leap into experience and trust your experience. So it was very much about putting more focus on the heart and emotion and not trusting uh, the mind. In fact, you know, the mind is considered you know, a bad thing, a dangerous thing. Oh, you're mm -hmm. so in your head, ma. You know, it would be a criticism. <laughs> and um, so critical thought, for example, you know, poo poo, that, that was. Yeah, that's a quick way to get rid of that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. that's, your, that's your mind. Um, but also I found some benefit from that because I think I was really kind of top heavy and cerebral. And this was also in that 70s time was when the human potential movement, the growth movement was part of what therapy was all about. So a lot of what we were doing that looked so weird and culty wasn't exclusive to Rajneesh. So encounter groups were happening everywhere. Um, people being naked and um, saying we should have more than one partner because love isn't something that you can just restrict by law. No, that, that was not an uncommon thing. Um, and so, yeah, it was part, I don't think you can look at it without the cultural context. Yeah, so what were some of the things that, um, that, that you were doing? So it seems to be more, there's a lot of action-oriented stuff. There's, there's, um, there's activities that you're doing um, to, first of all, you had to clear your mind, your thinking. So there was, I know you described some of the activities of screaming and trying to get rid of all these kind of... Oh, I've seen this coming up on my feed, actually. Oh, okay. Still, um, yeah, there's these things and I was like, Hmm. Um, just because, like, well, it was like, come to this retreat. Um, and there's this man putting like his hands on this woman. I was like, oh, like in a way that felt a bit uncomfortable. Um, and he's like helping her with her breathing. And then he's like, and now you need to scream all of the like trauma out and stuff. And I was like, I mean, if that helps someone, then like whatever, like each their own. But it was just the whole the whole advert, as I'm going to call it, <laughs> felt a little bit weird and a little bit like, you know, this woman was like sob crying and, you know, it's a whole, it's really heightened experience and she's like screaming and then he's like, I'm going to scream with you and I'll get it all out. And I was just like, okay, it was very a lot. And it's like, and then it's hard cuts to like, and this is why you should come to the retreat. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know. Didn't appeal to you. <laughs> no, but I can see, you know, I guess if you're going for a really, you know, you feel like you've got loads of emotions bottled in you and you, you want some escape. And so I can understand how, someone could get something from it but it was just the whole framing of it and stuff was a bit like and given what we do on the podcast you're always feeling a little bit on high alert whenever you see anything um, absolutely and, well you can see it's just rampant for abuse, mm, abuse this is the thing. in that with a with a top-down authoritarian mm -hmm. model of anyone saying you know scream and get it out no yeah. the, Basically, that's the cathartic approach, mm -hmm. which was a thing in mm -hmm. the 70s and has continued mm -hmm. 
be on, but in therapy, I'm, I'm a psychotherapist also mm -hmm. uh, specializing in trauma. Okay. And so catharsis in the therapy world has since been debunked as being very dangerous mm -hmm. um, for many reasons. And mm -hmm. one is if you're you know, a real fragile soul, um, you can be easily influenced. Mm -hmm. It can be terrifying. You, if you've had a lot of previous trauma and you grew up in a house where people were screaming and yelling and suddenly that gets triggered, mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 mm -hmm. it could really be damaging to yeah. people. Um, and people with anger issues, for example. I mean, mm -hmm. in uh, Pune, we didn't screen, as far as I could see, you know, who went into these groups very much. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was some screening. But, you know, if you have someone with an anger issue and they're encouraged, go for it, go for it, mm -hmm. you know, they could be really violent. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you, your instincts are, are very good. <laughs> be yeah. very cautious about that. Yeah, it just came up in the middle of Instagram. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Okay. It, it's still going on. It's surprising, isn't it? How yeah, how yeah. easy it is to see this stuff. Really. But like, like, like you said, you know, um, it's not just like, like the, you know, the impression of the people that get involved in cults. It's not just as though people are. Um, there was a the other documentary we watched with the Nixium where people were like, they they didn't realize these people had been in a court and they're like, oh bless those poor, you know poor like idiots for joining them it's like they're like we're not it wasn't like that it's you know you can if you look at it like even those videos that to me I was like oh no but if you're in the right position for that to speak to you then it does and that's why they make this content or like that's why these things do work for some people but obviously not it's not a good therapeutic approach but I can see how a court would use tactics like that to get people in because what what happens afterwards i mean there's all kinds i mean there's people teach you know various breathing techniques that mm -hmm. i've heard people swear by so that really helped me that was really useful i finally could breathe and let mm -hmm. go of things but what happens after i mean it was interesting so my experience as sort of a newbie going to mm -hmm. india in 1979 was participating in these groups that that's how an outsider started to get involved you know later on it was all about working mm -hmm. um but in these groups, which I did find um, really, I mean, I, I, I'm pausing because I question myself as I say it, you know, how mm. much am I justifying my experience by saying I found it very useful? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think I found it very useful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it seemed to, to, to break me open. I had trouble, you know, really speaking up and connecting with my emotions. But then you're in a room um, with all these other people and there's a vast picture of the guru on the wall uh, mm -hmm. in every group room. I could just take an enormous picture. So the purpose of it was sort of breaking you open and then allowing in, you know, what was perceived as, as his love, mm -hmm. which we understood cerebrally as well, it's not really his love, you know, it's, it's divine love coming through him. You know, I'm, I'm just as divine a being as he is. Um, and so there's this whole rationale about, uh, I'm not really giving myself over to someone else, but yes, you are. If, you, if you're mm. becoming a disciple, that's also what you're doing. You, we were asked to, to surrender mm -hmm. and the context of surrendering was, well, I'm surrendering myself in order to be more connected with myself. I'm going to be 
more, he's going to help me find the way to, you know, deeper understanding, opening my heart, you know, being more of who I really am. So it's not really surrendering, but it is. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it by becoming a patron. You can support the podcast for just £1 or $1.50 and receive a variety of Patreon benefits as a thank you. Don't forget to share the podcast, follow, like, subscribe and rate the podcast on the podcast app you're using. A review is particularly helpful as it gets us recognised by new listeners. And finally, if you'd like to reach out to us and tell us about some court hacking you've been involved in or you just want to say hi, you can do so by going to courthackers.com and using the contact form. We love hearing from our court hackers. Thank you for listening and now back to the podcast. Yeah, that, um, some of the uh, some of the accounts you talk about in, in your book, um, similar to what Celine was saying about some of the slightly inappropriate things you see uh, or Celine saw in that ad for a group, mm. um, you describe some of those things that happened um, in your case, in, in, in your example. And only when you look back on it afterwards do you think about the power differentials and the age differences and, and mm-hmm. all of that, which I think is very, very interesting. Um, so um in the interest of uh, making sure we get the whole story and i'm, I'm going to skip forward a little bit in time if i if i may um and think about how this group in india where it seems um okay there's a guru if you like i don't know whether that's the right term but there's this this figure who is supposedly helping you find this road to um to some sort of peace and spirituality and it although there's some inappropriate things happening and and there's certain things that you look back on now in the main um that it's it's fairly benign i guess but then what happens is is that the, the group and there's quite a bit in between but the group moves to oregon usa um to essentially build a uh, a community there um how did that happen how did it end up coming coming from india to the us and and starting to build this community over here well they always wanted a new commune people talked about oh we're going to move to the new commune because the the land in india was a very small area um and bhagwan had uh, an assistant called sheila who features in that documentary who had lived in the States. And I think she very much thought that that would be the place where this work could flourish and far more people would come. And so my understanding is she kind of instigated a move to the States and then the purchase of this extremely large, you know, 100 square mile piece of land. It's hard to imagine how Mm. how large it was. And you're right, Stephen, in saying um, that, you know, it initially seemed very benign. And I think... um, I just have to make the statement that it was benign for me um, sure. because I was having a great time and uh, it was a lot of fun and I was meeting all these people and felt like I was opening up and coming alive, but it could be hell for many other people. And, I've, and I'm especially children who were born into it or their parents dragged them into it who many years later are still trying to figure out, hey, what actually happened? Um, And it was not benign for people who were unpopular um, from the people in power who were Mm. 
received punitive um, treatment. Um, and there was a lot of underage sex that um, is coming out, you know, only now, many years right. later. Um, so I do wax positive because I think it's really important for people to know why someone's drawn to it. And yeah. I had some of the most amazing experiences of my life in that. But I, I have to always counter it with uh, that was one person that you'd have to ask everyone their stories to know what was going on. Yeah. That's a that's a very important point to mention. Yeah, that's that, thank you for that. Um, so so the the group ends up in um, Oregon because there's is a they're able to purchase this land, um, and it's kind of obviously there's a community there or around the region, but it's very small. Um, so you have this this big influx of people coming in, um, sort of taking over this large area, um, and I guess that that in itself is bound to cause a bit of um, difficulty you've got different cultures clashing and um, all of a sudden there's all these this extra pressure on on the land um, so that you, you talk a little bit about that in your book that, that the residents were not that friendly and that was when you started to experience some um, opposition from people around the community yeah Oregon it's the desert of Oregon central desert so it's a very conservative area and the main town that was 19 miles from the heart of the commune was antelope where 40 people lived um so they really didn't have a chance against these thousands of people uh determined to build a city um who had been um untruthful about the land use permits and so on and what they were actually you know they said oh no we're just ranchers it was just a you know, a few of us coming here and you know, more and more would, would come in. So it was a very difficult situation. Um, but initially, I think a lot of the press um, saw us with some favor because they could see the bigotry that was being directed towards us. And, oh, here's, you know, a strange Indian guru and people who look kind of different. And well, what about freedom of religion? What about free press? You know, we, we should give these people a chance. So initially, um, I think we were um, sort of kind of marginalized, um, but it very much turned the other way around as, as um, we became more powerful, but we're using um very aggressive unpleasant tactics um because i think we felt very vulnerable i felt like you know if if the law actually could see all the things that were going on especially there was a lot of immigration fraud for example um it wouldn't have lasted very long at all but there was this presentation of you know oh no we're a victimized minority these horrible oregonians you know come in and shoot our street signs are out to get us but they also were you know it's complex yeah. you know someone did bomb our hotel and uh, there was a lot of hatred it's interesting and, and we see that i think with groups and cults and so on there's a a liberal instinct which i i understand to um, want to protect people who seem to be uh, marginalized and yeah uh, that's right supporting people's religious rights and, and so on is really important but yeah it is complex because obviously um there, there's also other people's rights as well involved in these things and so you, you have this um this complex situation um yeah so i, I guess the 
um, maybe so. I'm, I'm fascinated in how things deteriorate sometimes, <laughs> you know, and, and how you can see a, in hindsight, you can see the, the the steps to it. And it seems to me like that was the kind of beginning of the end, in a sense, in that you've got a a kind of fraudulent activity where the this this Rajneesh group were trying to fool the authorities so they couldn't be honest about what they were doing which itself breeds suspicion um they they were coming in quite large numbers and that obviously spooked the local residents uh, local residents were not happy about that there's some of that fed into i'm sure certain amounts of bigotry and so on but also legitimate concern um, and so you've got these two communities now at kind of loggerheads and and um, this character of Sheila, she um, is introduced in your book and in the um, the documentary. Um, she seems quite a formidable character. Can you uh, describe Sheila a little bit? She's a um, perky, short Indian lady with a great fashion sense. She would wear her cowboy hat and pink boots. And um, she was really the front person for Bhagwan. The guru uh, went into public silence when he came to the United States. So he wasn't talking until the very end, but Sheila went to meet with him um, once or twice a day for an hour or so. So she was his voice um, and was communicating to us uh, what he wanted because we were all there because of our relationship to him. Um, so Sheila turned into a very aggressive person in her TV appearances. Um, you know, she was on all kinds of shows and she would just get, you know, in the face and give the finger and, you know, mm. those bigoted Oregonians, they deserve to be taken over, you know, this sort of stuff uh, with a lot of um, feisty language thrown in. Um, but I was never sure how much um, that came from her or how much that came from him, because I understood he also looked at um, the footage of what she'd done and encouraged her to be more outrageous, um, because being outrageous was part of what it was about. And um, we were we were rebels, so the idea of you know breaking the law, for example, uh, I think initially, I for one swallowed. Um, because I thought, oh, well, then they're not being fair to us. They're not giving us building permits. You know, maybe, you know, it's if we can sneak in a little um, underground uh, water um, going to the tent platforms for the, all the visitors coming in, oh, well, we, we sort of got one over on them. So, so I colluded is the word. So I think one of the um, steps towards things getting darker is this very tricky thing of thinking you're above the law. And I had absolutely no idea that they were really egregious things going on. And most of us in who were the peons who were you know, building the city and working seven days a week, you know, 12 hours a day, had no idea that the administration was doing things like what it ended up, we found out it happened, poisoning the water supply, poisoning salad bars in a local town where an election was going to be held. 
Um, and you know, actually making, I think it was about 750 people ill was salmonella who ended up in hospital. Um, that's just one thing that happened, uh, but it was the biggest bioterrorist mm. attack mm. on US soil and not the first because Native Americans were um, poisoned also, um, but it, it was really egregious. And um, so that was an sh enormous shock to just about everyone except for the elite who had been involved in that. Do you remember when you found out that that had happened? Were you still in at that point or...? Yes, um, I was there on the ranch when they, um, it, Sheila and her group of sort of the top administrators had left on a plane, I think it was night or dawn or something. So that in itself was the first indication of what's happened. This was unthinkable. And so gossip and fear and was going on and on. Um, and there were thousands of us there. Um, and then Rajneesh called a meeting and actually he was the one who told us, he was speaking now, and he said, um, Sheila has been doing all these crimes. She turned my commune into a fascist state. And, you know, there were plots to kill the attorney general. There were all kinds of terrible things that were unfolding. Yeah. Um, but he put it all on her and her um, top group and but figuring out, you know, what was actually true was sort of a very difficult process that um, I can't say I completely have because there's only sure. a few people who really know what was actually true. Mm. Uh, and it's complicated by the fact that um, part of Bhagwan's um, method was to say one thing and then say something else, wasn't it? And contradicts, but because he was there to provoke and confuse in a way that was part of the method of or so so it went of trying to help you find yourself um, exactly right? truth, yeah. truth was not his thing <laughs> in the literal yeah. uh, world because he was saying i'm taking you to a greater truth so every time i say something that's annoying to you or upsetting to you or goes against um, something within you, that's because I've triggered your belief systems and I've triggered your attachment. So if, say, for example, he was insulting Christianity, I mean, he insulted absolutely everything, um, then and you were upset because Jesus had been called something um, really unpleasant, then, oh, well, there's a great opportunity for you to examine that. So, so this internal self-reflection which is very much part of what the culture was all about, that we were there to meditate and grow, and that's how you did it, um, he could write everything off as, as a device. Yeah. And, and it made it yeah, very tricky because he's such a good orator. So, in fact, if you say, oh, he was against homosexuals, apparently he said some really homophobic things. But on the other hand, he also said some very pro-homosexual things or was very fond of some of the people he identified as homosexual so very slippery mm -hmm. to get your fingers on yeah you're, you're right on with that and so that that makes it difficult i guess when you think about sheila who was his lieutenant you know is she essentially mirroring mirroring that in her 
behavior or yeah so very very interesting and, and very uh, very complicated yeah so um in your book you describe a free loving hippie type um no structure type organization at the beginning of your experience of it to a group that has a a crack um police force with semi-automatic machine guns yes that's po a bit poisoning of a <laughs> poisoning people in the local community and threatening others it's just unbelievable absolutely and and watching the path of of acceptance of being in it and how you think oh well i'll go with that yeah like like um wearing uniforms for example just uniforms alone um was sort of against what we were about but our security um force wore uniforms and i became involved in security uh, at the lower echelon i never got a gun or anything but i got a <laughs> uniform and a hat you know which i thought was horrible um and the hat i mentioned in the book that mm. sheila had modeled from the east german border guards <laughs> so, so it was supposed to be an intimidating hat so it's like hey i'm in a group about love and mm -hmm. peace and why would i be wearing a hat that looks like an east german border guard but i <laughs> but i felt like um this was a theater um portrayal of power to protect our group from those who were attacking it and i think there's some some truth in that and i felt like well if that if it helps me to play if it helps protect what's so important to me to play this role yeah i, I could wear that da, da, da. Mm -hmm. so you know at different levels you accept or justify um certain behaviors until something happens where you go really goes against yikes no this this is not right this this really um touches something in me that's that um feels wrong and then that's very crazy making absolutely um yeah so um let's let's move before we um have to have to wrap up but uh, i want to make sure we get in the after stuff because one of the big important things about this podcast i believe is is that it is primarily about making sense of the world after you leave a group um you were in that group for quite some time from your early 20s um through to your 30s um how how did you find that process of making sense of the world afterwards and um sort of rebuilding who you were long and slow mm -hmm. um and i'm glad you asked because i think there's an awful lot of people out there in in some state of healing and trying to put together their lives after various traumas but a cultural trauma where a whole way of living and your whole belief system comes into question um when i use the word crazy making you know i'm i'm not exaggerating to me it was absolutely shattering to think oh i thought i was involved in something that was about love to find out that the group i was involved in was actually going to kill people or trying to kill people oh my god it's really really hard to put that together and there's this state of of shock um and to me, that state lasted a while. And 
I think after that, people, your, your mind can't actually handle the not knowing for very long. The mind sort of reaches to something to make sense of it. And in that case, for many of the people I observed, that something was, oh, well, it wasn't really that bad. And um, Obergwan, uh, he wasn't responsible. I'm going to blame Sheila and stick with my belief system. Or there were other people who said, oh, no, it was all absolute hell and I was taken advantage of and I was deluded and um, I'm really angry about these last years of my life. And so between those polarities, now you've got to figure out, well, what's actually right for you? And, and for me, the, as in many of the groups that we've belonged to, um, no, the world was portrayed as this dangerous place um, where people hated us and were out to get us. And it was really scary to come out into it um, in many ways. And one of the bottom line things is it's really scary when you don't have any money and you don't have any credit. I mean, the agony of the years it took to get a credit card, you know, it was just mm. anguish. And you know, trying to start over in your 30s or your 40s or your 50s or whenever it is, is such a huge and overwhelming effort. But part of that effort is so strong that I think it, it can take so much of your energy that actually the figuring out what actually happened can also take a back seat until you've got Food, and especially if you have kids and if you're looking after your kids. So it's a very, very tricky process. And I've also, as a social worker and therapist, I've worked a lot with torture survivors, people who've been tortured um, in different countries who've come in seeking asylum status. And so I've talked with them a lot about entering into this new culture and what it's like. And even though, you know, I can't, you know, I don't want to compare myself sure. to people who've been through political torture, but there were similarities I identified with and could say, yeah, isn't it really hard figuring out what these people are talking about? Now, how do you get a car? How do you um, find a job? You know, these basic things are very, very challenging. I mean, the first time I went to, I left on a, on a bus someone had bought and we went to a petrol station and started driving away and I realized, oh my God, no, we have to pay here. No, <laughs> I'd completely, no, we had all completely forgotten that because I hadn't seen money yeah. and I hadn't touched money in, in four years on the commune oh. and TV and film and all this stuff people talked about, not having any understanding of any of that. It made it really understandable how we would glom together in groups because only the people who'd been through it could understand what we'd been through and what we were grappling with. Yeah. And then there's a, an interesting, it's a short part in your book, but I think it's very interesting and, and probably quite sobering actually. Um, there's a, there's an individual there that was a teacher within the group who um, obviously himself was quite shocked about what had happened but you saw in him a kind of attempt to start to 
sort of grow his own following and and in a sense replicate to some degree what had gone before and and the audience was in a way completely ready for that that's what they wanted because they were so used to it um, and I think there is a risk in that isn't there that that when you leave something like that you are possibly not everybody but I think there's a a tendency to be a bit vulnerable to another set of answers another set of um sort of somebody taking over that role absolutely and there's a word for it i can't quite remember but let's use you know guru hopping or cult hopping you know a lot of people come out and then immediately get involved in something else that fills that vacuum and that loneliness and that longing for tribe and longing to be connected at that pitch of fever excitement that we often related to with one another it's not unlike i mean when i worked as a therapist i've learned an awful lot from working with domestic violence victims and seeing how so much of what goes on with them in a one-on-one -on -one mini cult is yeah. kind of a replication because that same thing happens if someone comes out of a lousy relationship where they've been abused until they managed to figure out what's happened and they found some time to get their self-esteem back and to heal. They're just going to attract the same sort of abuse all over again. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's very true. We've spoken to um, a number of experts in that field too, because yeah, coercive control is, um, is I suppose the catch all term, same sort of techniques, love bombing to start mm -hmm. with um, the test um the gaslighting all those sorts of things are yeah present in those relationships um celine you have a question yeah well i just say it's not it's not surprising i suppose that people would as you said cult hop in the sense that you know that people that have been in um coercive relationships and so on have that you know there's a, there's studies on being in repeated coercive relationships and like how that happens and the psychology behind that so given that there's a lot of similarities um between you know individual relationships and court relationships it's not surprising that you're seeing you know similar patterns happening there as well um, i think we can often see a lot of similarities across those areas of study definitely um so the, the other thing i wanted to just mention um nicola is that you and celine um have something in common of course you you talk about it in your book um at various points is that you've um, uh, from quite a young age, suffered from ulcerative colitis, which is mm. something we've talked about on this um, on this podcast. Um, mm -hmm. So you've talked about it in your book. I think um, I I think there's some relevance there. Why did you want to include that in in your book about your journey and um, and so on? Why was that important to talk about? I think part of it is writing a memoir. You kind of have to face stuff you have to face the really personal yucky stuff that you think i really don't want to write about that it's the last thing i want to write about and mm. expose and it turns out to be kind of important to do so and ulcerative colitis is a very hidden disease because it's mm -hmm. about our bowels who the hell wants to talk about their bowels you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's i think it's important for that for that very reason, you know, it causes so much suffering. It's such a horrible, horrible thing. And when I look at you know, the online groups I'm involved in where people suffer from colitis and Crohn's, which come together under 
inflammatory bowel disease. There's just so much misery. And I feel, I guess I've got to an age where, you know, to hell with it. If, if I need to talk about my poop and that's <laughs> going to help people be comfortable and to know that they're not alone in hurting and trying to deal with something so difficult, I think it's important to, to give mm -hmm. a voice to that. Yeah. I, um, I did a course at uni, um, like a psychology um, related course. Um, and we were talking about the abject. So specifically, I was like, well, and we were told to write something about ourselves that fell into that. So I was like, well, I can give you one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and wrote about that. Um, and it's, yeah, something I've talked about more. But yeah, it's a very isolating disease. Um, because I first got it when I was 16, which I think is, you know, th there's no good age to get colitis or to realise you have it, but it's a, definitely not the, the best one. <laughs> um, you know, when you're already, life's already embarrassing enough at 16, isn't it? And then yeah. you're like, oh, nice, another bit. Um, you know, you get given a toilet card at school, which obviously does does great things for you socially. <laughs> You know, um, that you can wave at the teacher and say, I'm, I have to be let to go to the toilet. You have to let me go, especially, you know, anytime. Um, but it is, I think, you know, more people like yourself talking about it is really good. Um, like there's a YouTuber that I follow, um, Hannah Witten, that talks a lot about her experience. And that was actually really, really, really useful to me because it was just a person being a person talking about it in a non-squirmy way. You just been like, oh, this is life, isn't it? Here we go. <laughs> Yeah, and true. And and also, you know, the book isn't about that. The book's yeah. about me, but yeah. it's an important aspect of me. So I think it's good just to know that, hey, there are protagonists, mm -hmm. uh, people dealing with stuff who've got these things yeah. going on. And, exactly. and, you know, and if you're living in the US and you don't have any health insurance and you're terrified okay. that it's, you know, uh... you're going to get an attack, you know, it's a pretty big deal. Well, for instance, I mean, it, I can't imagine what it would have done financially to us as a family being being ill the first time because I stayed in hospital for two weeks, um, and the cost that would be, you know, that would just be astronomical <laughs> um, if we didn't have, you know, the, the NHS. So I, you know, think ourselves really lucky for that. But that's again another reason to talk about this sort of things. It's chronic, and people, you know, they don't have all those healthcare stuff covered is something that it doesn't just go away you know <laughs> absolutely um, and yeah. and i think there's a whole um new age guilt aspect mm -hmm. that um somehow we're responsible for our mm -hmm. illness and need to uh be more positive no not quite that but a bit yeah <laughs> but, but there's some of that out there and it, i certainly mm -hmm. hit that in the ranch where uh, illness was really frowned upon, mm -hmm. um, probably because it took away the workforce if anyone yeah. was unable to work. Um, but I did internalize some of that guilt and mm -hmm. and would also justify my in my head. You know what I and I still do it to some extent when I'm really feeling well and great. It's like oh well I'm I must be really um, on top of it. Doing, yes, I'm on top of it. I've got it together. You know all this. Um, wonderful work I'm doing on myself is paying off. And then wham, you know, it, it comes in. And how much, you know, do you get in your head trying to 
make yourself feel guilty for it's because I did this or that or I didn't do this yeah yeah Yeah, but I remember being poorly as well though the first time I'm saying to dad like it's not fair um you know I I don't drink and I don't do this and you know I, I I do this and I don't you know all these I'm doing the things I should and shouldn't do so it's not fair but it, it's not fair it just is <laughs> and yeah. no it's not yeah and there's a lot of again in that course I was um reading about or like we were learning about illness narratives and the way that we tell stories about illness and how that kind of feeds into what you're saying there about the guilt and it's um you know the people that are good and like the good protagonists of the stories are the ones that get better a right you know, and and be um battle it in the way that we want them to whereas you know it, so a lot of these stories do, do talk about things like um cancer we talk about win, you know battling it and winning and you know all of this and it makes you but a if you've got a chronic condition you can't win <laughs> right. it just is so that that has an effect on your mental health but also um you know it, it puts you in in a state of anguish with your body all the time because it's it's you know it's but you're battling it and it's battling you so it was in it was a good course to do because it made me a bit more a think about it because I put it in a box and then didn't think about it <laughs> and just you know don't want to deal with that and be um yeah just makes you a bit more aware of how we use language and how it can impact how you think about things and yourself and sort of that sort of thing and how it, it and how all that then impacts our health yeah yeah exactly you're worrying so and, much and, about and, it and I guess my I'd say colitis has been one of the biggest teachers in my life because mm-hmm. it has humbled me over <laughs> and over and over again and has raised the question of well how can I you know what can I do to support my wellness mm-hmm. you know, and and the very things you're talking about, you know, looking at, at how we process it, how we identify it, what's the mm-hmm. story, you know, I think are really, um, that really important to me. I, my next book is about healing. I'm writing a healing. Oh, fantastic. I just went, went through not only colitis, but cancer, which yeah. stirred up the biggest colitis, mm-hmm. two-year colitis flare. So it's right. been basically hell for quite a long yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, dealing with that, you know, I hate anyone else to say it, you know, as far as, oh, it makes you stronger, you know, who the hell yeah. is stronger? <laughs> yeah. But then again, you know, having to learn to, to be ourselves and be with our bodies mm-hmm. and what's going on and how best to address it does make us who mm-hmm. we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all right for us to say it, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and, anyway, I'm, I'm so happy to meet you, Celine, in, in that yeah. way. I feel an incredible kinship. Yes, someone else suffers all that stuff. Yeah, so I feel like I've met so I've met yourself and then um someone else on the podcast, and that's the only time I've met people. I've never met someone in person yet, but even though I know that they must be out there, it's just we don't all talk about it. (laughs) That's right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think um sort of to thread that together, I, I one of the things that came comes out from all of these discussions is is the way that we tell stories Mm -hmm. to make sense of our world and i I think that is um you know that's how i understand coming to terms and making sense of life in in jehovah's witnesses it's you know you you you've had a narrative you've told your story in a book um 
um, and, and we tell stories about our illnesses and that's basically how we do it. That's how we do this sense making thing is we tell stories about it. And that's why I think, you know, speaking to people like you about your experiences, reading books um, from authors such as yourself is so very, very important. And that's why we love to do the podcast is to get a chance to, to listen to people's stories. It actually is part of that sense making. People will listen to this podcast and a little thing that you've said will click in their in their mind and that will help them with their own story so that's i think really really important mm -hmm. well i'd like to, to, to say appreciation for 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 what you're doing because you're right i mean and and it's like it's not i'm i didn't set out to write my memoir to help anyone i just had sure. to write it and it was what i needed to do and there was a lot of self-figuring out that happened in the process i had never even anticipated but once you do it and then it goes out there, you never know what's going to come. So I'm just delighted. Oh, my gosh, you've read it. Because how did anyone's read it? Because it's so new. And and th there's a connection. And yeah. I can feel connected to you both and yeah. whoever else, you know, relates to something. And uh, that's part of being human, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And there's so much more I, I could have um talks about it but obviously it's not it's not nobody wants to listen to me talk about your book so um i i didn't go on about it but there are so many parallels it's it's actually of course we see it all the time but um but yeah it's very very interesting so yeah um i, I guess i i guess that's really all we have time for as they say <laughs> on all the radio shows um Thank you so much, Nicola, for coming on to the podcast. It's been fantastic talking mm -hmm. to you. I've been looking forward to uh, this interview for quite some time. And, um, yeah, so, so interesting. Uh, look forward to your book. We'll keep everybody informed about the release dates. Um, thank you so much, Nicola Ranson. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Lovely to meet you. Cult Hackers is an Evil Sheep production.